Hi everyone, welcome to this podcast. I'm Dr. Anna. I'm your guide on the journey to personal transformation. I'm a seasoned transformation coach, a manifestation expert, and mental wellness and addiction specialist. Join me as we explore positive strategies for change and well-being, and of course, manifestation. To connect with me, simply visit my website, livingwellnesscoaching.com. Let's dive into today's podcast, Grace versus Law and Neville Goddard versus the Apostle Paul. If you know who Neville Goddard is, you know already that he references the Bible all the time. But did you know that his book named The Law and the Promise borrows its name from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians? Maybe you didn't. Today that's what we're going to explore. Neville Goddard is a 20th century mystic and lecturer, a law of assumption teacher. He drew upon biblical themes in his teachings all the time, and this concept, the law and the promise, is one of his key ideas. While the terminology may echo biblical use of law, or the word law, in some ways, it is important to note that Neville Goddard's interpretation and emphasis differ significantly. Here's a breakdown of the similarities and the differences. The similarities are, number one, language of law. Both the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Galatians and Neville Goddard use the term law in their teachings with different emphasis. Two, faith and belief. Both teachings involve the importance of faith and belief. Of course, there are differences too. The first difference is the focus on imagination and consciousness. See, Neville Goddard's teachings very heavily emphasize the power of imagination and consciousness. He suggests, of course, that our inner thoughts and our mental images have creative power in shaping our external reality. This focus on conscious creation is not the primary emphasis of the Apostle Paul's teachings. Paul's focus is on liberation and secondly, individual empowerment. While the Apostle Paul's emphasis is on the grace of God and the redemptive work of Christ, Neville Goddard's teachings often focus on the individual's ability to consciously create their reality. Neville's approach is more proactive and more of a personal empowerment approach, where individuals are encouraged to use their imagination and their beliefs in their benefit to manifest desired outcomes. Paul is focused on our liberation through faith. Thirdly, Promise is a creative act in Neville Goddard's Law and the Promise. The promise is presented as a commitment from a higher aspect of oneself or consciousness to fulfill one's desire. And this is a unique aspect, not directly paralleled in Paul's writings, as of course Paul is focused on liberation, not fulfillment. Of desires. 
A fourth difference is the metaphysical interpretation. Neville Goddard's teachings are often associated with new thought teachers and metaphysical interpretations of biblical concepts. His emphasis on the practical application of imagination and consciousness for manifestation remains materially focused, whereas the Bible's message is on the spiritual. So while both Paul and Neville Goddard use terms like law and they discuss the role of faith, the focus and interpretation of these concepts diverge significantly. Of course, Paul is the original author of the Law and the Promise. Let's remember that. Paul's teachings center around the grace of God and justification through faith in Christ, while Neville Goddard's teachings center around conscious creation or reality creation and the power of imagination in shaping one's reality. The theological and metaphysical frameworks within each of these teachings are distinct. In super simple terms, when Neville Goddard talks about the promise, he is referring to the idea that your inner beliefs and your imagination can act like a promise from a higher aspect of yourself or consciousness. It suggests that what you strongly believe and imagine in your mind has the potential to manifest in your external reality. So the promise is like the commitment or assurance that your thoughts and beliefs have creative power and can influence the outcomes in your life. It is about the notion that imagining and believing in a certain outcome can bring it into reality. In a sense, Neville Goddard's concept of the promise does align with the biblical idea of faith. He encourages individuals to have faith in the creative power of their own thoughts and beliefs by consciously imagining and holding strong beliefs about the desired outcomes. One can, according to Neville Goddard, bring those outcomes into reality. So at its core, his teaching involves having faith in the creative capacity of your own consciousness. The Apostle Paul's focus in his letters to the Galatians is primarily on the concept of justification, grace, and faith. He emphasizes salvation through faith in Christ, contrasting it with a works-based approach tied to Mosaic law. His intent is to establish the unique role of Christ in the redemptive process. While both touch on the idea of faith, their application, their underlying principles, and the ultimate messages diverge significantly. It is crucial to approach each perspective with an understanding of its own unique context and teachings. Noteworthy is that Neville had several mystical experiences which led him to focus his teachings on the subject of grace, faith, and the promise. 
So what is my point in even making these distinctions of these two different views of the law and the promise or law versus grace? Well, I don't want you to be misled. It's that simple. Neville Goddard takes the Apostle Paul's writings and he makes the meaning his own. That doesn't mean that Paul didn't already have a meaning that he wanted to convey when he wrote these letters. That is different from what Neville Goddard is conveying. Let's dive into Neville Goddard's concept first. I'll read you a few paragraphs from Neville Goddard's lecture, Grace versus Law. Tonight's subject is Grace versus Law. We are told in the very first chapter of the book of John, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Unnumbered volumes have been written about grace versus law, but tonight I'm speaking not through theory, I'm speaking from experience. And so we're called upon to pass on to other generations, succeeding generations, our testimony. As we are told in the first epistle of John, first chapter, the first three verses, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and seen with our eyes, that which we have seen and heard we pro proclaim also unto you, so that you may have fellowship with us. For these are the two births that take place in every individual in the world. No one brings about his own physical birth. He is born by the action of powers, not his own. And no one brings about his own spiritual birth. He is born by the action of powers beyond his own. The first, we admit, we are here clothed in this garment of flesh. We find ourselves here, but we know that we never had anything to do with it. It is simply so that we find ourselves here. And just so you will find yourself born spiritually in the same miraculous manner. You'll be born from above, just as you were born from below. Here, we are born from below, from the womb of a woman. Then will come another act, God's mightiest act, and you will be begotten and born from above by the action of powers not your own. We turn first to the law. In the very beginning, God established the law of identical harvest and let the earth put forth vegetation, trees, yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their own kind. This is from Genesis. Here we find the harvest is nothing more than the multiplication of the identical seed. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. This is from Galatians 6. That's in this world, this law. Tonight, I will show you what I have found about this sowing. Causation in our world is really mental. It was not always known as a mental state. It was believed in the beginning to be physical. And so laws were instituted and men abided by these laws outwardly. They observed the law. 
Then came the great revelation of grace that interpreted the law, thus bringing grace. For, said he, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he interprets the law for us and puts it on a mental plane. You have heard it said by men of old, thou shalt not. And he states it. But I say unto you, and then he puts it on an entirely different level. And not one statement conveys it more graphically than, you heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, to look upon a woman lustfully is to have already committed the act with her in your heart. This is from Matthew chapter 5. Not to restrain the impulse, that's not good enough. But not having the desire, then you haven't committed the act. But to have the desire because of the consciousness of your act, then you restrain the impulse that is still not good enough. The act was committed with the impulse in the consciousness. Now, here we are on an entirely different level, a mental level. And this is what I discovered about this level. I could stand here in front of you physically and see any part of this world mentally by assuming that I am there and then viewing the world from that assumption rather than thinking of that state. Standing here, if I desire to be elsewhere, although at the moment my reason tells me I can't afford it, my senses tell me I haven't the time, you're committed, you'll be there next Friday, you couldn't get there and back, so here you are, you're stuck. But I desire to be elsewhere. So reason and my senses deny that I could be because I just shouldn't be there. But standing here, let me now assume that I am where I would like to be. And then let me mentally view the world from that assumption as though it were true, just as though it were true. Now, these paragraphs are from Neville Goddard's lecture called Grace Versus Law. I'm going to let you explore more of this interesting lecture on your own. And I will link to it in the description box below. But can you see what Neville Goddard is doing? He's really completely excluding himself from the typical jargon of the new thought movement of his era. This is a distinctive approach to reality creation. There are no methods here, no magic tricks, no affirmations, no vibrations, just a faith-based concept. Grace versus law. Neville Goddard is surely on to something and only by testing this mental imagining can you decide if he has a point or not. So why don't you try it? and come back and comment and let me know if it worked. Now, I want to finish this podcast by simply reading to you Paul's letters to the Galatians, where we got this concept of law versus promise from. I'm going to read all of them, just so that you can get a feel for the difference in teachings. 
I would actually like to see every student of the Law of Assumption dig into the actual Bible. After all, this is the standard reference book that is always used. This way, you have armed yourself with the true words that are written in it. You know, it's easy to be taken for a ride these days. The internet has so much disinformation to offer. Especially when it comes to reality creation. Especially when it comes to religion. Why not read the words for yourself? Now, you don't have to read the whole Bible in one sitting. Give yourself time. The commonality in the writings of Neville versus Paul is that there is an emphasis on letting go of the fight. To put down the constant motivation to do and do and do and do and to think, think, think. Rather, what they want you to do is to feel. To feel it real. To feel it easy. To feel it blessed. To feel love. To feel awe and humility. To feel that the work is already done. Let's talk about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was originally known as Saul of Tarsus. He is a significant figure in the earliest days of Christianity when he was just being formed. Paul's life and his contributions to the formation of the early church are incredibly interesting. His view on the law versus grace are clear. And this was obviously very important to him. But what did he mean by the law and the promise? What did he mean by law versus grace? First, let's look at his own personal experiences. So Paul was born in Tarsus, that is in modern day Turkey. He was born in the first century AD, maybe five or 10 years just after the birth of Jesus. He was a Roman citizen by birth, and he was a Pharisee, and he was a zealous persecutor of the so-called Christians, that is before his own conversion. You see, Paul's life took a dramatic turn on the road to Damascus one day, where he had a profound encounter with a risen Christ. So this is after Christ has been crucified. Paul encounters the risen Christ. This experience is what led to his conversion. And this is when he became a fervent follower of Jesus. A mystical experience very often has this life-changing effect on an individual. There's nothing quite like a personal encounter or a personal experience to convince you, is there? Now, although Paul did not have the opportunity to physically accompany Jesus during his early ministry, his encounter on the road to Damascus so profoundly shaped his understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Son of God. And he argued that salvation is a gift from God received through faith in Christ. It is not something that is earned through adherence to the Mosaic Law. And just so that you understand the Mosaic Law, it refers to the collection of commandments and statutes and ordinances that were given to the Israelites through the prophet Moses. 
This set of laws is primarily found in the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah, or the Old Testament. This includes the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, who else wrote the New Testament besides for Paul, who had this experience with the risen Christ? Well, Paul is one among four authors of the New Testament. There's also Matthew and Luke and John. Three of them had actually direct connections to Jesus during this early ministry of Jesus, but Paul did not. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples that were chosen by Jesus. He personally knew Jesus. Can you imagine that? To me, this is mind-blowing. It gives me goosebumps. Before he became a follower of Jesus, Matthew was the tax collector. He is credited with writing the Gospel of Matthew. Now, John was also one of the 12 apostles, and he is the one that is often referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John had a very close relationship with Jesus, and he is the author of the Gospel of John, as well as the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation. Luke was not one of the twelve disciples, but he was a companion of Paul. He is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. While Luke did not directly witness Jesus' ministry, he gathered information from eyewitnesses. Now back to Paul, or Saul of Tarsus. He is known for these letters, his letters to various early Christian communities, the book of Galatians, which is what I'm going to read to you today. The book of Galatians was written to address issues and to counter the influence of certain Judaizers who were promoting a distorted version of Christianity by emphasizing the importance of adherence to laws and rituals. This is why he's talking about the law versus the promise. This is why he's talking about grace and faith. In his letters, Paul makes a strong case against work-based salvation. The message is grounded in the understanding that humanity truly has an inability to be perfect and that that is okay this aligns with the concept of grace through faith. Faith, not law. Love, not law, is the message. Joy, not law. Trust, not law. Yes, the very essence of the very best manifestation teachers is to be found right here. But let's not reduce Paul's message to manifestation or materialism. Rather, let's hear what he intends for us to hear by reading his letters. He's saying that your liberation is already won. The letters to the Galatians. Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the 
present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. No other gospel. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now, I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul called by God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. And then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles. I only saw James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Paul accepted by the apostles. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along too. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and that I had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was Greek. 
This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. Paul opposes Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Faith or works of the law? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by believing what you heard.
Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain, so again, I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was created to him as righteousness. Understand that, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be pleased through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, The person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit the law and the promise. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but it says and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred to had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Children of God, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, 
locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. Nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to a guardian and a trustee until the time is set by his father. So also, when we are underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul's concern for the Galatians. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people who are zealous to win you over, but for no good, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Hagar and Sarah, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman, Sarah. 
His sons by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother, our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who had a husband. Now, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Life by the Spirit You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, 
or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Prostitution, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Footnote. Flesh here means uncontrolled lust. Doing good to all. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. No circumcision but the new creation. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule.
to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen.